This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast, the weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 331, recording on Thursday, September 19th, 2019. 919 doesn't matter. Um, I'm <laughs> Jeff O'Neill here with Rebecca Shinsky, coming to you from a very great website called bookriot.com. Hello. You were out last week. I was. I was in Mexico. It, the, the fates aligned for Jen to be on the show and talking about bookshop. Dot org. Uh, I, even though I know you have some thoughts to to append, I was anticipating a influx of listener email. Got one about bookshop.org. You know, Shocking to me. Shocking you would think after eight years, maybe we would have a better sense of what people were going to have opinions and feedback about, but it still is a surprise when they do and when they yeah. don't. And I did get to listen to a good chunk of that conversation. Jen was definitely the woman to be sitting in this chair last week. Yeah, she really was. Um, lots of questions that we still don't have answers to. Um, we're gonna. This is a story we'll be following for a while because I think, like I think I said on the show, is really a nexus of a lot of interesting stuff going on and has been brewing in the book buying world since really like before Amazon, since the the halcyon days of Barnes and Noble, which is how do you combat um, as a federated group, you know, the ABA, a giant player in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, failed miserably against Barnes and Noble. Have had some more success, sort of after the great shakeup that Amazon represents. But now, what do you do? Um, is there a way forward here? I think is really interesting. Uh, we'll get some follow up about that too. But first, let's do a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is. Quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris, is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself 
Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Okay. Follow-ups. Um, this is a follow-up related to our Interpretive Maladies bonus episode. If you are so inclined, it's on deep discount on Kindle and Audio, Audible right now. You can get it for two ninety nine on Kindle, get it for 4 bucks as audio, and you could bundle them together to get it for around 8 bucks. Seems like a pretty good deal. I have no idea if it's related to the 20th anniversary, or I know this one goes on sale from time to time, but some of you who hadn't read it before or have, would like to read it again in a different format... Go check that out. There'll be a link in the show notes that goes directly to it if you want, or just you know go search for Interpretive Maladies on Amazon. I didn't look to see if it's a deal on any other um, e-retailer platforms, so go check that out if you have a preferred one. Um, more Audible said it was going to pause using captions um, in non-public domain works. Well, that lasted uh, <laughs> not very long, or at least I guess they're still paused, but they have another argument to make that says Audible says that captions are fair use. Fair use being the nebulous, I don't know, cases where you don't have to respect someone's copyright, I guess. Is that, is that fair use? Yeah, I mean, it's, I it's, think it's hard. It's a moving target, I feel like, fair it use. It is a it's moving target. I think it's one of those things that's intentionally vague, and sometimes that serves yeah. people who are trying to do the fair use thing, and uh, sometimes it serves to protect the holders of the copyright. I don't really have a sense for how often it's one or the other, but like, you know, fair use is writing a parody of a story or writing fan fiction, like a transformative work counts as fair use. And there are a whole bunch of other technicalities there as well. But um, it's enabled, fair use doctrine has enabled uh, several different media technologies over the last 40 years to develop. And Amazon's Mm -hmm. legal filing cites a 1984 Supreme Court ruling that holds that recording copyrighted TV shows with a video cassette recorder was legal. That's a famous case, a very very important case in the history of fair use, actually. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, that basically if that one won that, VCRs would be illegal. Mm. Or the recording functionality on VCRs would be illegal because copying anything. Sure. Yeah, anyway. And so that's Sorry. how we end up with like DVRs now. TiVo exists yes. because, of, because right. of that case. And mm-hmm. um, there's also a 2015 appeals court ruling that upheld Google's project to scan millions of copyrighted books right. for use in its search engine. And Audible is also referring to a series of cases that hold that it was fair use to display thumbnails of copyrighted images in mm. search results. So they're contending that the Audible captions are not a book of any any kind, much less a replacement for paper books, ebooks, or other products. And that's going to be ongoing for yeah. a while. But I did think it was worth mentioning this, especially because you and Jen had talked last week about Audible being like, fine, we'll put the captions on pause. Um, they are doing it, but they're not going quietly. And it will be fascinating, I think, to follow how this case develops, especially given the precedents and the history here of um, technology cases that copyright law you know, was written at a time. These laws were created at times like well before um, all of these technologies can be anticipated and how the law is evolving or not to catch up is really interesting. 
I was watching, this is going to sound like a non sequitur because it sort of is. I was watching the movie Philadelphia a couple weeks ago for reasons I don't understand. Crying? Yeah, I was, my spirits were too high. Mm. It was like, I mean, it's a good one. It was an emotional quaalude. Um, (laughs) And there's there's many great scenes in there, but one Mm. where um, Tom Hanks' character is asked, which of these, which would you, who would you like to see prevail in this lawsuit? You know, one is mm-hmm. the client, the company's current client, one's a, an upstart and one's a, an entrenched player. And Hank says, like, you know, this little scrappy underdog, I, if they get crushed, then blah, blah, blah. And it made me think about in these kinds of situations, like, who do you want to win? I don't think we answered this question when we've talked about it before. Like, judging what we know about it, and forget the law for a second, um, who would we like to win this case? Which, which do we think is better for the reading world writ large? that Audible can do this or that they can't do this. And I find myself not really sure, ultimately. Forget about the law, because like, that will play it out. But in terms of which of these paths where Audible can provide real-time AI transcriptions or can't, I'm not sure what, I, what side I want to win. I'm not either. I was sitting here with like furrowed brow while you were asking that, mm-hmm. being like, please don't make me have a solid... <laughs> I don't want to weigh in on a solid side yet, because I can really see... I can see ways that it would really benefit the reader, um, especially from an accessibility standpoint, to be able to just have these captions. But as with many technological developments, there might be unforeseen consequences mm-hmm. to that. If it affected, then if if the existence of it affected publishing negatively in an outsized way that ultimately impacted readers who care about books negatively like there's this is so many steps down the line to try to guess about how it will turn out i think in the immediate i would like to see audible be able to do it um not so that audible or amazon can win a thing but so that like people and companies developing new technologies Mm. that ultimately serve some kind of reader accessibility can continue to do that and if somebody's got to spend the money to fight that battle it might as well be amazon um but the like potential things that run down that slippery slope a lot of them are still question marks like i don't even feel like i know all of the right questions to ask to come to an answer about which end of this is better for readers yeah and i guess the the question i was thinking about is like does it pump more or fewer dollars into the publishing ecosystem to have this or not have it and i can't figure out because it, it doesn't seem to me that if you bought the audiobook and you have the captions, was that, is that going to prevent the purchase of a Kindle book you were going to make if it didn't exist? I don't see that as a case Mm-mm. that makes any sense to me. I don't see what it's competing with, what it would cannibalize. Yeah, I'm skeptical um, that it cannibalizes anything. Right. Now, I get at this point, Audible is so big in the audiobook market, and Audible is so it's, it's a, it's owned by Amazon. Amazon's a big player. I guess I'm nervous at any point now that more power, more features, more market share is good for anybody mm-hmm. um, on this side. But again, I don't see who it's, it's taking. Is it taking market share at all? And if it is, who is it taking it from? It seems to me it's more likely taking it from Amazon, like the Kindle book. You're getting a text version that's real time. I just don't see it's like, oh, I, I, now that I have that, I'm not going to do why. I don't, I don't see the next step. I don't see what it is. So um, I guess at this point, I'm more interested in how the outcome is determined than what the outcome actually is. Yeah, I think it's really tricky because there could be, you know, like a small scrappy upstart somewhere working on AI technology that could advance the reading experience or yeah. can also caption an audiobook in real time. But the thing about like small scrappy upstarts is that they don't have 
money to right. fight a thing if the publishers come after them. Um, mm-hmm. So if like I think if somebody is going to be developing this, I would love for it to not be Amazon or Audible because I share those same concerns about adding to anybody's market share. But in terms of like fighting the court battles that allow technology to progress, it's got to be somebody with deep pockets. Yeah. I also think too that we've seen on Libro FM and some other players, Apple, Barnes and Nobles, you have mm-hmm. audiobooks from a bunch of different places. Oh, yeah. Maybe it's as simple as differentiation for Audible. You can get a real you can get a live streaming transcription from us. Amazon has Alexa and a whole bunch of machine learning and um, text-to-speech and backwards recognition that maybe it's as simple as it's a feature you can get with us and you can't get with Kobo or you can't get with Libro mm-hmm. FM because they don't have the tech chops to do it. And maybe it's as simple as that. Maybe it's as simple as yeah, just an so. additional feature and it's not really even about trying to sell people the audiobook and sideways and ebook. They don't have to pay for both. That publishers don't get a cut. It might be as simple as here's a thing you can do on our platform that you can't do on another audiobook platform put that in your pipe and smoke it. So um, I don't know if that's the most charitable reading. Maybe maybe the <laughs> simplest reading is the right you one. Know, I mean, if that's what's going on, though, that's interesting. If Audible feels the need to be developing additional features to compete against some of the other players in yeah. the audiobook market in a way that they previously wouldn't have felt that squeeze. So I'm interested in it if Audible is feeling the squeeze. Like anecdotally, we've seen great responses to Libro FM from Book Riot's mm-hmm. readers and listeners. It's a, I think that's an interesting case because it's like the same catalog of audiobooks yep. you can get on Audible. The prices are either similar or exactly the same. Um, Libro, though, allows you to support independent bookstores. You can buy and gift specific titles mm-hmm. um, on Libro FM. You can't gift specific titles um, through Audible. So there's some distinguishing features on the other side there. And like, if, the, if it happens to be that the top line note here is that Audible is feeling some competition from these other players, then like that would be super interesting and exciting. Speaking of Audible, not I mean, Audible, historically, I don't feel like has rested on those laurels too much. They've done Audible Originals. They tried the podcasting mm-hmm. thing. And a big piece of small news this week related to this that actually I am used immediately is that in your Audible app now, you can use your credits directly in the app, whereas all of you who have used Audible on your phone or some other place know that it used to be you have to go log into audible.com through a browser Mm-hmm. Um, and use your credit that way because otherwise Apple, especially less so on Android, I don't think Google charged a transaction fee. It used to be that in 30% of that purchase, the credit being a purchase would go to Apple and Audible didn't want to pay that, you know, 30% of your fourteen ninety five purchase, they don't want to kick over to Audible, uh, excuse me, to Apple. So now you can use it in the app. You can do it like it should be. It's great. I just, mm-hmm. when I saw this happen, like I had a couple credits. I'd been wanting to pick up She Said, and I opened my phone. Boom, it was there in my library. It was great. That also suggests to me that Audible's moving the needle on that. That's another feature, a user improvement mm-hmm. that surely is costing them something it wasn't costing them before. Now, maybe they negotiated with Apple saying, hey guys, let's, this 30% is unreasonable. Could we do 10%? Could we do 5%? Could we do 25%? I don't know. I can't imagine Apple said, you know what, we'll give you for free. You can just do it for whatever. But something gave them that tug of war between Apple and Audible about the transaction fees that were associated with using your credit on Audible. So now you can use it. It's great. I'm I'm really excited about it um, from a personal point of view, but also maybe compounded with this. They're, They're trying to iterate. It's a better experience to use Audible today than it was last week being able to do this. And they're certainly trying to do something more to make it more interesting. Um, so anyway, 
interesting note. Go try, yeah, go check it out. That's a, one of those small improvements that has been a long time coming. You want to do a shout out and then we'll do another sponsor and then get into the news. Yeah, we want to shout out book writer Christina Orlando. Um, we've been following on this show Spotify's ongoing journeys into podcasting mm. and adventures in podcasting. And um, one of the true things about the podcasting world in general is that female podcasters, especially female podcasters of color, um, are really underrepresented. Um, just 22% of podcasts in the U.S. are hosted by women and even fewer by minority mm. women. So Spod- Spotify, Spodcast, it's a new Sp- thing. <laughs> well, get, <laughs> That's what copyright that. It. Copyright that. Spodcast. Rebranding for Spotify. Call me. Yeah. Um, they created an immersive accelerator program called Sound Up uh, that was created to tackle the issue of underrepresentation of women of color in podcasting. The program is designed to uplift and amplify voices of women in color. It was an intensive week-long program that had professional facilitators. They handpicked 10 participants from thousands of applications to this year's class, and that included rioter Christina Orlando. And at the end of the course, Christina, among others, was awarded $10,000 to fund their proposed podcast. Now, we don't know the contents of Christina's podcast. It's still a secret, um, but I'm pretty confident it's going to be awesome. And mm. congratulations to them. Yeah, when we find out more, we'll definitely give a shout here. Okay, sponsor, then on to news news. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out the Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. All right. Um, let's go. Let's, you know, let's wrap in some of our 
um, new books news. We got a couple of links about um, our buy sell hold updates. The Ooh, testaments yeah. off to a record breaking start. Boy, just what we predicted, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, released on Tuesday, has according to PRH sold over 125,000 copies in its short shelf life. Um, it makes it the best one day sales for any Penguin Random House title in 2019, which feels like damning with faint praise a little bit. Just well, 2019? It has to because Penguin Random Becoming. House published Michelle Obama last year. <laughs> but even that's telling you something like, okay, it, it's our best-selling <laughs> yeah, single day you know, since Becoming. It just not, seems like a weird way of putting it. I'm not sure that this is actually in contradiction to our predictions because I think oh. we knew that Oh, te- I like what you did there. Okay, we, tell me why. We knew that the Testaments, I think we anticipated that the Testaments yeah. was going to come out of the gates hot. hot. But the real test, and I'm, I think that this is the title I said this about on the Buy, Sell, Hold episode, the real test is like what happens after that first mm. surge? Like what are reader reviews like after the first surge? What happens, you know, like uh, in the Goodreads rankings um, after the first big surge, after the people who bought these 125,000 copies read them Mm -hmm. and have opinions about them on the internet. Will it continue? Like, will it have the kind of long tail that makes it one of the best-selling books? Like 125,000 copies is no joke. It's probably already one of the best-selling books of the year, but will we be talking about it next year as one of the best-selling paperbacks? Will we be be talking about it in five years as a groundbreaking Mm -hmm. work of fiction or or not. Um, and like, it's been a couple of weeks. I, I don't know. I'm just about to finish it. We're going to talk about it for yep. an upcoming episode of the show, but, um, I think it's, it's not surprising that it comes out hot. Here's a couple of comments that I think speak to the reason we were selling because mm-hmm. the price was high. Mm-hmm. Some American independent books sellers had hoped that testaments could prove to be hit on the level of a Harry Potter. Let me just say that ain't weren't never going to happen. That just wasn't going to happen. So that some people thought that could happen was why we were selling it. And you just Um, can't plan that. No, you can't. Um, And here, the next chapter booksellers in St. Paul, Minnesota said it had a launch party for the novel, which wound up being, quote unquote, an intimate gathering with less than 10 people. Yeah, you know, I was, I told you I was anticipating buying this in an airport bookstore on the Mm -hmm. way back from vacation so I could have like the quintessential reader experience with the book. And I didn't even see it in the Atlanta airport. Like it it was probably out, but I didn't see it. Um, There were not people like all over the place reading it. I was sitting at a brewery across the street from my house reading it yesterday afternoon. And like, you know, when there's a giant new book that everyone's talking about, people will interrupt you in public because Mm. you're reading it and they're reading it too. Just my anecdote here is that I haven't been having that experience with this book. I've sort of touched base with some bookseller friends to be like, are people even talking about it? Like no one's really talking about it on the book riot back channels, which is Mm -hmm. something to me. Um, I haven't seen a lot of discussion about the book itself. Um, so like this is certainly an event. Um, but what happens to this book after the event part is over, like after all the confetti settles, what do we really think about the testaments? Yeah. I still feel pretty confident about my cell. I do too. Uh, one indie bookseller who requested anonymity, which is always telling us <laughs> on the testaments is it doesn't quite have the same reach as a book like Harry Potter to that. I say, no doy, I think is the, the what I'm. He added, "I'm surprised how few young people know who Margaret Atwood is and know about The Handmaid's Tale." I'm not that surprised. I'm not. It's a four. It's a forty year old book. That's well. We'll talk about this in the show. 
I think it's literary fiction, The Handmaid's Tale. Mm-hmm. It's speculative fiction and literary fiction together. It's not a big genre book. It's not, it just isn't the same way that Game of Thrones or something like that is. And how like, few young people know who Margaret at was. It had, there's a TV show. We don't know how big of a hit it is. Um, we know that the icon of The Handmaid has be, entered popular culture as a sign of political protest. But in order to sell like Harry Potter, it's everyone, everyone has to be buying it. There's Not just like, jerks like you and me who read it 25 years There's ago. an entertainment and enjoyment factor that has to happen for a book yeah, to be that right. big. To be Harry Potter or to be Twilight or Fifty Shades of Grey or even like Where the Crawdads Sing, which is surging right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to put on my theories hat about that in a couple of weeks about why that book is doing what it's doing. But like... Margaret Atwood's a tough hang and not in a bad way, but like these are challenging things to read. The Handmaid's Tale is a downer. Mm. Um, Living in 2019, kind of a downer. I think there's less of a market for downer books in Mm. general and being mostly through the Testaments. It's like, you got to give all the trigger warnings for the content Mm -hmm. of this book. And that kind of content is harder to sell now also than it was in 1988. Um, I just think that, I think I'm with you in Camp No Doy about, of course, this wasn't going to be the size of Harry Potter. Um, it's just, it, it's a really, like, the, it's a tough subject. Um, mm. And that's hard, I think, always hard to sell, but you can't expect a book that's like a difficult thing for people to read to ever come out and be on par with something that's like almost pure delight in the way that Harry Potter is. Yeah. I'm now trying to think of what's the best selling tough hang book of all time. Ooh. That's that's a question for a different thing. You know, did something come to mind for you? I remember when the Kite Runner was a big deal that people would talk to each other about it as like there's this one scene especially and you'll know it when you get to it. Um and I was talking to somebody about Kite Runner recently and how I think also it would have a harder time selling today. Like mm. I don't know that it would have been the phenomenon published in 2018 or 2019 that it was when it came out I think in the early 2000s. That like the tough hang as fiction is just also a harder sell these days yeah. than it used to be. But woo, read our listeners, let us know what do you think is the best-selling tough hang? I mean, A Little book. Life is an extremely tough hang. It sold pretty well, but it sold well for literary fiction. Like The Testaments right. we're grading on a different Mm-hmm. Um, curve for the testaments. You know, the girl with the dragon tattoo is kind of a tough <laughs> hang oh, yeah. in hindsight. Um, yeah, it is a tough. That is a tough hang. But plotty. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the other thing. It's mm-hmm. it's a tough hang in a conventional. A lot of. I mean, this we've talked about this in earlier shows. There was even the word about like the best mystery thriller doesn't have like just women getting the crap kicked out of them as like right. the central thing going on in the book. Can't say that girl with the dragon tattoo. It was very readable in a different kind of, it was readable in a very page turnery kind of way that happened right. to be a tough hang at the end. Yeah. As well. I think like a page turnery, like it's violent, but it's violent in a page turnery way that readers of genre or are used to is yes. like, like, that's a different beast from tough hang in literary fiction that's mm-hmm. looking at major political issues that result from the systemic oppression of women. Right. <laughs> like all right. of this adds up to you're only going to get a particular kind of reader who's willing to like be bummed out for 500 yeah. pages. Right. Um, all right. I think we've talked about that without stepping on our larger Handmaid's mm-hmm. Tale slash Testament discussion. So let's move now. on there. Buy, sell, hold updates for um, show what they knew, et cetera, et cetera. Both Quichotte and What They Knew cracked the top 20 for hardcover fiction. Mm. Um, what They Knew came in at number nine. 
uh, Quichotte just cracked it at 20 with less than 3,000 co- copies sold in print. I even think I said something like, it's, it's probably going to sell 3,000 copies, mm-hmm. crack the top 20, and then <laughs> go away. Oh, wait, what um, they knew? Are you talking about the secrets they kept? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, yeah, secrets they okay. kept. The, the Prescott okay. um, is selling pretty well. Um, it doesn't look to me. It's going to have to be a builder. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Um, and maybe it hasn't it will grown be. so much. Maybe it will be. You don't know how these things go. The book club, the, the book club trajectory thing is different shape than like the yeah. giant pop culture Martian kind of a hit where it comes out big and sells that way for a long time. I guess the Martian is totally the wrong example because it was so, it, but a different kind of um, like a James Patterson kind mm-hmm. of where it sells a whole bunch and then it keeps selling and sort of ramps down from there. If it becomes a books club thing, it'll slowly ramp up and then be unstoppable. Yeah. Um, at some place down the line. I've got a weird one for you. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's birdies out there. I've made inquiries. I've gotten, hasn't gone back to me. So in the August 14 to 18 book scan chart that appeared in the August 19, I think, Publishers Weekly, um, where the crawdad sing was number one, the hardcover frontlist fiction, selling 44,000 copies that week, right? The next week's issue doesn't appear in the top 20. It's not, the, where the crawdad sing is not in the top 20 and like it would only have to sell 3,000 or so to get there. It's real confusing. And I don't know why. The only thing that I can think of is, A, there's some sort of error. And B, does that list only cover things that came out in the last 52 weeks? Because it did happen to be that it was the one-year anniversary mm-hmm. of the publication of Where the Crawdads Sing. And maybe if you're more than a year old, you're no longer covered, call, considered front list, if you're, even if you're still in hardcover. I don't know the answer to that. But I thought that was very confusing and a real mistake if what you want to do with that list is keep track of what people are buying. But see, that doesn't make sense to me either because, oh, the places where Go shows up in the children's books every year, and it came out 10,000 years ago. So there's something going on here that I don't understand. So if you know out there, what, and it was two weeks in a row, it still hasn't reappeared. And I can't believe it went from 44,000 to 2,700 copies overnight. Um, So I'm really confused about that. Anyway, that's... I don't know why. Oh, I know, because we're talking about bestsellers. Yeah. I don't know what the hell happened to there. Also on the buy, sell, hold updates, mm-hmm. I'm also listening to She Said right oh. now. So we're both there. And within about 10 minutes into it, I was like, I think I'm going to end up being wrong on my predictions about this book. And I would be super happy to be wrong about it. Like, I buy it. I think I bought it. Did I buy that? I think I did. I think you did. I, I think I held um, we'll have oh, to. Oh, the audio is amazing. We will. It, it's so good. There yep. are is so much backstory, and like there, eventually we're going to get to new interviews that they've conducted mm. with a bunch of people, including mm. Christine Blasey Ford. But as soon as they said that in the introduction, I was like, "Well, this book is going to be great, <laughs> and <laughs> is going to have way more in it than just here's how we reported the story of Harvey Weinstein." And right. I'm so glad for that. I think that my hold might end up being correct. Now to my chagrin, because I wanted to be wrong. I want Mm. this book to be huge. There just has not been a lot of publicity around it still. I'm starting to see readers talking about it, like it's showing up on people's Instagrams. But like, if you have this book with all this great stuff in it, why are you not spending a jillion dollars to market it is a big question that I have. I think, I'm not sure the title was a great idea. Mm. I'm just not, even in their description of it at the beginning where it's, because you, you get Christine Blasey Ford, but also you get a lot of the people, and it's supposed to be about women saying things, which I get. I mean, from that mm-hmm. point of view, I like it, but I, I just don't know that the title is very captivating. If they had called it like Breaking Weinstein or something. like Yeah, right, you know, right, right. Yeah. You know, Bob Woodward, he named his book Fear. 
Right. Right. All the president's men. There is a time men, to those be are sensational. Titles. Yeah. Right. Or not even sensational, but a little juice is okay. She yeah. said it's it's like kind of an arty name that's a metaphor, I guess, but it's a little too pedestrian. Um, anyway, that would be my like bad blood. That's a good mm-hmm. title. Yeah, it's a great title. Um, Breaking Harvey Weinstein maybe is a little more Michael Wolf than I would go, but I would go. I would make <laughs> but, a mistake in that area. Fear was that acceptable direction. and not dramatic. <laughs> At least it's one word. <laughs> Got it. So one melodramatic word is fine. Yeah. Write into us with your suggested alternate titles for sheets. Yeah, I don't have a great one, but I did. I was like, in the, the cover design, I don't want to get in. Why am I doing this? Because we're doing buy, sell, des- hold updates. What, 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 what did you think of the cover? I, Do you I even know what the cover looks like? Yeah, because I've seen it on my audiobook. And tell app, the people what it looks like. It's a white cover with red letters that say she said. It's a beige, beige cover with she said in giant red letters. That's it. Yeah, I don't were, know. There's something were, about this. I don't. The whole I'm thing sure. needs to be shinier. Just like the whole yeah. process around this book, I think, needs to be shinier. It deserves to be shinier. Like now that I'm into it, I feel like this book has been done a disservice in the way that it's yeah. been packaged. Here's another weird one. So I'm, while we're on this, so Amazon's chart, mm-hmm. so it has number is the the top twenty most sold and most read books of the week okay. for this week. Um, where would you guess the Testaments is in the top um, twenty? Eighteen. That's a good guess. It doesn't appear. Oh, trick question, Jeff O'Neill. Number one, talking to strangers. Number two, The Only Plane in the Sky, An Oral History of 9 11. Mm. Number three, Educated. Talk about a, a, a grower. That's a long tail. Number four, She Said. So I don't know. I don't know what to make about that. That means that we should have sold the testaments about She Said. I guess is what it means <laughs> at this point. Becoming still at number seven. I'm just yeah. doing this now. Anything else that's relevant to us? No. Not really. Girl, stop apologizing. Number twenty. That book keeps not on. relevant. No. Um, okay, let's do another sponsor and, and more story. This episode is sponsored by the one that got away with murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. 
The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Um, where do you want to go? Talk to me about Edward Snowden. I don't, you know, I'm not sure how these things work. I don't, as much as we do this, I still am not sure how these things work. So the, the Justice Department has filed a civil lawsuit against Edward Snowden that would recover all proceeds of his recent released memoir. Um, it doesn't seek to block, block, block the release, just give me the monies. For it. Uh, it was allegedly not submitted to the CIA or NSA for pre public review, a required practice among former employees of intelligence agencies. Um, as such, the department considers the book a breach of Snowden's fiduciary obligation and names the publishers as co defendants in the lawsuit. Um, I have so many questions already. Uh, I, I knew this is a thing that um, it's a required practice of former employees of intelligence. Like, if you sign up to the intelligence agency, right. I think you sign these things saying, mm-hmm. you're going to tell us, you're going to show us your manuscript and we're going to get out a Sharpie, basically. And presumably Snowden and his publisher decided against that. Or let them sue us and we'll do it and it's good publicity for the book mm-hmm. is my, my tin, mm-hmm. not even a tinfoil hat, but my like galaxy skeptical. brain yep. invert, mm-hmm. uh, thinking about it. Um, yeah, I guess that's... I guess we'll see. Let the course decide. I'm glad they haven't tried to block the release of the book, which which would doing so would be illegal under the First Amendment. But still, I'm in this administration. I I'm going to celebrate small victories. I guess um, many of U.S. Snowden's U.S. defenders see the loss as, as raising real questions about the constitutionality of the pre-publication review system itself. Now that's interesting. Like this thing that the DOJ or the NSA have mm-hmm. asked people to do. Can you actually? do that. I feel like the other thing that's going, this, if I'm the government and I'm not going to try to release it, what am I doing? This is like Streisand effect is what I'm thinking. We wouldn't be talking about Edward Snowden's book if not for this story. That's where I, that's where I'm coming down. Yeah. I'm totally willing to believe that they were like, let them sue us. Then we will take the publicity here. I think the question about the constitutionality is really interesting because I would guess the reason this rule existed in the first place, that this policy existed, was supposed to be like to protect matters of national security from being right. released by people who are publishing books. But if that's the case, if that's really the size of the concern and a justification for asking people writing these kinds of books to submit them for pre-publication review, then why wouldn't you um, yeah. challenge the availability of the book after the fact rather than just going after the profits. Maybe they've read it and decided like, oh, there's nothing in here that's damaging enough to mm-hmm. merit that kind of fight. So instead we'll just take his money. It's like a harassment sort of situation as a way of, of you know, preventing future people from pulling a Snowden. Yeah. Make, sh- make sure that people see that it's a rough go to do yeah. this. Like you're not going to, where is he now? I don't even know where Snowden is at this point. He's not in the U.S. because no, if he would came back, he's like fugitive, subject to the Espionage right. Act or something. Mm-hmm. But like, we're not going to let you sit around in Lithuania and collect uh, royalties. Just not going to happen. So maybe it's just pro forma, kind of like defending copyright. Sure, but you, know, you, you have do to do it, it so that you have, you have to as much as 
I'm not sure. Uh, if, and if people know more about this, email us podcast yeah. at Book Riot. Be interesting to see how this one shakes out for sure. Yeah. I wonder, yeah, who's gonna, who do you want to win there? Let's play that game. I think I want Snowden to win, though I'm not a huge Snowden fan. <laughs> I, I guess I'm just cheering against the, the NSA at this point. <laughs> yeah, I think on principle, I would want the person in Snowden's position you know. here to win, um, barring like presentation of very compelling evidence mm-hmm. that the information being made public is actually dangerous. Um, really one story. Oh no, I have one and you have one. Do yours mm-hmm. and I've got one. All right. This was just like a feel good thing that came across my desk this week. Goodreads has partnered with the little free library organization to create, give a good read week. It launched earlier this week on September 16th. It runs through the 22nd. So by the time you're listening to this, it's over, but you can be happy that it happened. Um, what they were doing is asking the community of 95 million readers on Goodreads to add their favorite book or their latest Goodread to a little free library near them to share a photo on social media with hashtag give a good read and hashtag LFL 10 um, during the week and Goodreads will share those photos. That's it. Like mm. you don't have to try to win something. You don't have to buy anything. It's basically just publicity for the existence of little free libraries, <laughs> um, which I think is wonderful um, and just a fun partnership like this is just one of those things that makes sense goodreads has readers little free libraries need readers to keep them stocked with books why not get together um, we've been outspoken fans of the little free library concept here mm. on the show i like to put books in one i would be happy to do it for give a good read week so mm. you can even download a little book slip on the uh, the link that we'll have in the show notes um, to leave in the book so that you can provide a note for the reader of the reader who picks it up from the little free library. Um, personalize mm. it with your own message. I thought it was cute. That's it. I like it. Especially speaking of things I thought were cute, sort of. Mm. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> so it looks like there, in, in the people who care about these sorts of things, there's some excitement because... It's possible that John Milton's personal copy of Shakespeare's first folio has been found. Oh. Um, Claire M. L. Bourne offers a rich analysis of the manuscript annotations in a copy of the folio now at the Free Library of Philadelphia. She demonstrates that the annotations are highly unusual in character, having been added by a reader who was very attentive to misprints and metrical errors, which <laughs> Milton mm-hmm. would be. Um, and in two cases, those of Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet, was comparing the folio text with the text supplied by a quarto edition of the play, which came out quite a bit later. In several cases, the reader corrected the folio from the quartos, but his emendations were by no means slavish and were accompanied by other textual changes that seemed to have been inspired by his own sense of what was needed in a particular context. So, based on all this, wants to suggest that Milton is it for a variety of reasons, but the one I really liked is this dude named Jason Scott Warren is doing a paleographical analysis of the annotations in this folio with known writing, handwriting by Milton. Ooh. And it's fantastic. It, go, mm-hmm. it gives specific examples with images looking at why Jason thinks it is Milton's. And it's, it's so cool because like, while we're going minute, we might also know that Milton has an enlarged italic hand, sometimes rather scratchy, sometimes quite elegant, that uses headings and such like compared the R in the speech heading for Romeo in the folio and another R from the commonplace book. And there's the example. It gives the picture of the R in the folio and the R in Milton's journal. 
And I'm like, that's it. That is the same handwriting. Now, I don't know what the, ver- the, the, the spectrum of variation in handwriting is of English poets or like English people with first folios, but like the, the way he says he, the, Milton or this Milton and this annotator, right? He is exactly the same. The mm-hmm. way they write mourn is exactly the same. And I was just nerding out in the <laughs> high, just, just the best possible way. The way they, this person uses asterisks to like, you know, leave a little, it refers to this or something else. I thought it was just great. So shouts to Claire M.L. Bourne um, for the, the manuscript annotation analysis and Jason Scott Warren for the paleographical um, analysis. Jason Scott Bourne looks like he runs a website called the Center, or the Center for Material Text, a new study, for, a new form for the study of the word in the world, which if you know me at all, I like this. Mm-hmm. A paleographical sounds like a word that Robert Langdon would love. Yes. I like the whole investigative element yes. of this. Like We never got that from Langdon, actually. It's not that this handwriting looks like this handwriting. I don't ever yeah, remember no, seeing that. I, no, I mean, he's a symbologist, Jeff. That's outside oh, his... Oh, right. Not paleo- that's outside his element. He uh, needs a ponytail swinger as a paleographical... <laughs> You know what maybe I'm maybe that's the next one. That's the next uh, one. there surely there will be a handwriting analyst in a Dan Brown book someday. Oh, someday. There's got to be. But like I I think it's first of all really fascinating to think about anybody like correcting and annotating Shakespeare in this way. Mm. And while I don't super care about Shakespeare or about John Milton, I like the existence of this kind of stuff. And I would read like an, a deeply annotated look at all of it of like, here's what Shakespeare is saying. Here's what Milton wrote mm. about this thing. Like, look at these two minds kind of interact with each other, I think would be fascinating. Yeah, really, um, really interesting stuff. So there's a link in the show notes. You can see if, if this is at all interesting, I really, I really recommend checking out the side-by-side images are, are really fantastic. So um, yeah, Jason Scott Warren is the director of the Center for Material Texts at Cambridge. So the, if, if anyone's going to care about Milton's handwriting, it's these uh, mm-hmm. ladies and gents for sure. Paleographical. Paleographical ponytail swinger is probably the show title. Hey, that's our <laughs> show for this week. <laughs> yes, I think so too. You can hear us in a couple more days talking yeah. all about the Handmaid's Tale phenomenon and our take on the Testaments. Yeah, if you know anything about what's going on with Crawdads in the bestseller list, I can't get Publishers Weekly or BookScan to email me back. So I don't know what's going on. Um, Show notes, bookride.com slash listen. Rebecca, we'll talk to you next time. Have a good one.